Welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. I'm your host, Shona Holm. Today, I have a very special guest for you. He is a man who holds a great love for the wonder of nature and its folklore. I had the great privilege to co-lead three tours in Ireland with him, and I will treasure those memories for the rest of my life. John Wilmot was born in Yorkshire to a family that practiced herbalism, clairvoyance, divining, dowsing, hands-on healing, and astrology. Before he was eight years old, John was drawing astrology charts and dowsing maps. Folklore interested him greatly, especially the changes, transitions, and flowing of the seasons, along with the movement of wildlife. Nature spoke to him in a way that the deeds of heroes and villains could not. John raised a family in Scotland in the Inner Hebrides, where he worked in forestry, fishing, and stonework that included contracts on Iona, restoring the Sheila Nagig, the Relig Oran Chapel, and the altar in the nunnery. While in the Hebrides, John was also a successful writer doing a syndicated weekly column on Celtic folklore with some astrology thrown in. He also hosted group retreats to explore both Scot Scottish folklore and in-depth astrology concepts. John was also studying herbalism on the side and eventually graduated from the National Institute of Medical Herbalists, and he also earned astrology diplomas from the Faculty of Astrological Studies and the Mayo School of Astrology in England. At 35, he earned a degree in food science to further his herb and plant interests. And while at college, he campaigned fiercely for local owned and managed native forestry conservation in Scotland. He later met singer harpist Claire Roach and formed a partnership where they restored a thatched cottage in County Sligo named Carrowcrory Cottage with labyrinth gardens that John built. And that cottage became a venue for touring groups to visit and experience Irish hospitality. Claire's gorgeous singing voice and harp, John's beautiful poetry, walks in the labyrinth, and local folklore. John formed Bards in the Woods in an effort to invite people to explore native forestry through a combination of nature walks, picnics, and sharing poetry and stories. During this time, he also coordinated Holy Well revival projects. Sadly, just before COVID, John's health took a turn for the worse, and Carol Crory Cottage was sold. He now lives in a peaceful riverside cottage in South Leitrim as a writer and online broadcaster, focusing on nature folklore. In addition, he runs a course titled Journaling Nature Folklore, which teaches how to become more intimate and clairvoyant with the landscape, which involves setting aside our linear worded languages and using natural cycle-based prompts that we can translate into a journal form to increase our connection with the natural world. He is author of the book, Bathing in the Fae's Breath. His website is naturefolklore.com. He also has a fantastic blog on Substack, and you can find that at substack.com at naturefolklore. And he also has a YouTube channel, and you can type in youtube.com at naturefolklore. And then if you would like to contact John, you can email him at john at celticways.com. Welcome, John. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for all that showing up. That's the first day I sorted out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Oh, it's lovely to be chatting with you, really. Yeah, this is wonderful and just so fun 
after those tours, like that was five or six years ago now, I think in Ireland when we when we led those tours together and and they were absolutely magical, just 10 people. And a lot of those people are still friends today. Oh, the first one was it 2017, wasn't it? And, yes. Uh, that, that's become a very tight group of friends. And then lovely two groups in 2018. So it would have been June 2017. And I think June and July in 18. Yeah. Uh, fabulous memories. And uh, it really explored. I, I've been doing lots of tours and lots of groups and lots of retreats. But the three you brought over really was... It was right into it, especially in 2017. I was so pleased with them afterwards. I thought, yeah, this is what I've been trying to do. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It was such a privilege and a pleasure. It was just amazing. Amazing. I mean, really, I will treasure those memories. So I would love for you. You are you have so much knowledge. You're such a good teacher. And I've learned so much from you. I would love for you to start by telling us what is OM. And and I'm I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Ogham, Ogham. It doesn't matter. I, uh, people sort of on the social media they'll argue for days over how to pronounce <laughs> certain things. But I don't. I think the thing that's forgotten everybody because of the internet thinks that um, you know we're thousands of miles apart, and everybody thinks that in ancient times everybody had the same communication. But certainly not. Even in my childhood. Uh, the village that was perhaps 10 miles down the road had a completely different culture to what we had in our village. So if it was like that in the 50s, uh, you go back to ancient times and I, a lot of the pronunciations and guesswork. I think uh, a sort of a standardized scholarly pronunciation seems to be Owen. Oh. But... Uh, you can say Ogham. Uh, I, I don't criticize that sort of thing. We know what you're talking about anyway. So don't worry about that. Uh, so that, that's the start. It's whatever you want to make it. Um, the, the person I like currently, and I, I'll do a bit of bio before I get up to him, um, is a man called Damien McManus. And uh, he is retired now, but he was an early languages professor at Trinity College in Dublin. And very controversial because he hasn't approached it from a history point of view. He approaches the OM from an early languages view. And he reckons that the scribes were really lazy. And of course, it wouldn't be any different today. You go for a job as an employee and uh, you've got to do as your boss tells you. And uh, otherwise you get fired and you lose your salary and so forth. So with these scribes, it's the same thing. They either were under the chieftains or they were under the abbots. And uh, the abbots really wanted the scribes to pump up their own heroism, um, their own dynasty and uh, their own heritage so that they would be seen with a good ancestry. And so storytelling, I think, took a big change before any of this. I think storytelling was entirely a nature folklore. Storytelling was about communication, really about uh, the change of seasons, helping people to be aware of the change of seasons and uh, change of weather that would include change of animal and bird behavior, that type of thing. But once the influence, I suppose, from the Greeks, the Romans, and then the early medieval, 
the storytelling was all about heroes and villains. And I think that changed the whole mindset of humanity. But what I love about that with Damien McManus, uh, that he's really put the uh, Ohm in a fantastic perspective. Uh, but I've gone into a long spiel to say, the E ranks the word Ohm comes from Wales, not from Ireland. And of course that knocks people off. And there is actually a Welsh word that is spelled O-G-A-M. And he goes into explaining why that is. And uh, so that's fascinating. But for me, way before I heard of Damien McManus, I was getting tidbits of Orm uh, from father's families, uncles, aunts, great uncles and aunts, a great aunt Rose was one, Lillian was immediate aunt and, and uncle Cecil. So I wasn't really taking that much in because they were teaching me other things. I was really getting into uh, the ordnance survey maps and uh, I, anything that was charting and geometry, I was right into it. And, and certainly dowsing maps, I was being shown for that. So the OM was something on the back of my mind. And it wasn't until I was on Iona, I would have been early 20s then, probably 2021, 20, very fit lad. And uh, I didn't go to college because I started family early. So with a family, you just need something that had good wages. And uh, because I was fit, man, power was fine. So uh, what, moving stones was fine for me. So got these contracts on Iona, uh, as you mentioned, the Religoran was the biggest one. And then the fun stuff was the shield and the gig. Uh, and the altar, well, we had to move stones for the altar. But there was, um, our boss uh, was a Natty McKechnie. And it was fantastic because he, he was getting on in his years a bit. And he was actually started off as an apprentice when they rebuilt, uh, restored Iona, I think in 1936. So he started his apprenticeship then. And he was a very fluent Gaelic speaker, nat a native language. And he was full of stories. and. He was forever continuing the story about Orm. And his story, the Orm, was the first I'd heard about the linkage with trees. Uh, he also talked about the Picts and their language um, using the cut, uh, or what, uh, what's it called? Where they actually cut straight in the stone, uh, which is one of the Orm interpretations of what it means is a straight cut in the stone. And he's, he talked a lot about how these people of the trees were the tree language, uh, which he said was what the Gaelic people were. And he was saying how they met up with the Picts and it was through that that they had to build up a communication. And his theory was the use of Orm uh, as a communication between the two. So that was where I got the idea. First idea, the 20 symbols, the 20 trees in the most common way that people understand them, which of course, isn't 20 trees because it includes uh, things like uh, the vine and ivy um, and even, I mean, even rushes. And so, you know, that, that was, I thought that was a bit odd at the time. And the lovely thing about the discovery with uh, Damien McManus later, it's now 20 trees, but that's just a, another story for another interview, I think. But that really got me and, and right through my life then, after Atti, Atti had such an effect on me. And I had absolutely no interest in going into the academics of the OM. I wanted to actually feel the OM. Mm -hmm. And so it was like bit by bit when I approached the tree uh, and, and started thinking of it in OM terms, I started to think, what does this prompt? What does this tree prompt me? What, does, 
what influence does it have? And this is where the clairvoyance of the land comes in, is you get something, a basic one, and people love the oak because of the way the oak stands firm and it has really deep roots. So the immediate prompt and symbolism is the strength. You can get all the strong winds and it won't blow it down. All the other trees might be flattened. You might get a branch or two go down, but that root's so sturdy. So you get this idea of strength and stamina, but because of the nature of it, it's there's an incredible balance. And no wonder people think of it in terms of justice and mediation. So I went around each tree and sort of building up uh, around that. And that's what came with one of the Bathing in the Phase Breath book. And um, why half of it is almost Tale of the Trees, because over this time I was putting together all these poems and jotting, I was journaling. And uh, it was just on one of the US tours. Uh, Claire Roach said, John, I haven't got a CD coming out this year. We need something to raise funds to pay for the airfare to get over to the US. It's your turn. You better get one of your books out. <clears throat> I think this was about two weeks before we were going home, something like that. And so I had this almost tale of the trees and I had these stories and um, it was, I had about 600 pages. So I had to whittle that down into a 300 page book and send it straight to the printers. And it was quite remarkable because the first gig of that tour, the UPS man had the printed copies of a book and me, we both walked up the steps at the same time. It was that tight. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up putting that to music. And, uh, and I, I, to say the Damien McManus is what I'm getting quite excited about now because I'm doing an actual course around it on the Substack for people to pay the subscriptions. I have a um, 20 module course that I'm put together. I'm calling it Journaling Nature Folklore. It's really a course in how to use prompts to be clairvoyant in the land. But I'm using the examples of the Oum and the Oum trees as being the way to bring it together because people can see a tree, they can identify it. A lot of people know what Oum is. So it, it, I think it gives confidence and trust in what I'm talking about because when you talk about being in the space and talking about the clairvoyance of the space, I think people get quite scared of that. So you've got to loosen them up. So I think that's enough on Oum. That's nearly another hour. <laughs> well, okay. So, but Oum are symbols, yeah. right? It's symbols. And each symbol represents a tree. And then you also said as well, ivy. Yeah, they, uh, you've got the, uh, you certainly got the rushes. You've got the ivy. You've got the vine. What's that? Some say it's honeysuckle. Some say it's... Um, uh, a grapevine, uh, variations on that. Nobody can make it, or even brambles. So nobody can make up their mind on that. And gorse, uh, another one as well, gorse and broom seem to be thrown together. Damien McManus actually separates them as two different trees because when they're allowed to grow, they look different. And, the, and of course the broom doesn't have as, the same spindles and the, the, the flowers smell different as well. The, Gauze, the furs that's got a coconut smell, broom's got a vanilla smell, subtle difference. That's uh, so, um, but the other point as well, <clears throat> I don't think ohm now a lot of people associate trees and ohm together. I don't think they ever were together. I think what happened was people had a language of trees because before we had sentences, before we had could put words together, all we had was symbols. 
even in the caves, uh, you can go into cave drawings and you see uh, herds of um, bison or herds of cows running around uh, and you get uh, hunting scenes. I believe they're all prompts. They're not just, oh, I'm an artist. And that's how the language was done. Uh, the people would use prompts. And that's why I really learned, I was um, verified, I think, by this Damien McManus. So the, for thousands, if not millions of years before we had a language we could scribe down, our only language was our, our voice. And in order for, to communicate our voice to another tribe, because they were talking different voices, we'd have to show them pictures, we'd have to show them prompts uh, in order to put that uh, all together. So I believe that the idea of using different trees as prompts uh, came first, even the Chinese. I mean, even the Chinese have a, a symbols around a bunch of trees as well. So I think you'll find other nations, well, our nations now, there weren't nations then because there were tribes. Um, that that was one of them. But then, as Atti was telling me on Iona, that uh, there was this sort of language in stone that the Picts had been doing in order to communicate. So somehow I think that's what happened is the, the carvings in stone came together with a tree. And I think the early medieval people put this together. And it wasn't really until seventh, ninth century that um, the scribes, who were obviously trained in Greece, Greek and Latin, and that's where they got the symbols from, that they put together into linear language. I don't think probably might have been until ninth century they took any notice of the Orm, and they would think, mm, how can I put this into language? And they tried all sorts of symbol things to separate it from the Latin and Greek. And it wasn't until the Book of Ballymote until, that would have been 14th century, late medieval, that the scribes actually used Orm, but instead of being, <clears throat> thing with Orm, uh, you read an Orm stone, it starts from the ground upwards. You read it from the base upwards. But what the um, Book of Ballymote does, it actually includes it in linear language, just in the way that we write it. And I think they, those monks, they would write this, they would scribe, it was odd for them because they scribe from left to right. For some reason, when they included the Orm, they would scribe that from right to left. That's how it looks like in the Book of Bali Mode. And so there was a transition that there we had uh, Orm as prompts, or even the trees as prompts going earlier to that. It gone through these transformations until it became included as a, a sort of scholarly language. And I think it's unfortunate that people, when they look into Orm, they use the Book of Valley Moat as one of their leading, ver uh, leading studies for verifying the Orm, just because it was written and because of the scribes. And of course, by then it was severely church-backed by the time you got to the 14th century. So uh, I always have this thing, um, when I was a child, the first thing I read was the, um, the resurrection story, you know, the Christian resurrection story. And I've always thought then, and I love, you know, you've got the crucifixion and of course there's, that's the whole big challenge, but I love the whole process of the resurrection. And it's amazing how many situations I think of that uh, in people's situations. Everybody seems to get stuck in the crucifixion. They don't move in on to the resurrection. And I think that's what happened in the own studies. 
that they, they'll home in on the book of Ballymold, uh, but they don't really, a lot of people don't go back and of course they go forward. They like graves, they like uh, the wicker man, the wicker founder, Gardner, that's it, Gardner. Graves, Graves came up with this idea that the Ulm came from the uh, Gauls of uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, he came up with the alternative astrology chart. He chose 12 of the 20 symbols and made a chart. And of course, a lot of people believe in that. They love that, the idea of divination with the Ulm as the 12 symbols. And you'll find mention Ulm to a lot of people. That's what they follow because they like the idea of having a tree or a plant for each sort of month of the year. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just taking a drink on that one. Whereas Gardner thought, well, there was 20 symbols, let's have 20 parts of the year. So you got these guys with stuff from the top of their heads thinking, oh, this will sell well, <laughs> let's put this together. So I think a lot of people, from, if they go from the Ballymore, they might go to Graves and Gardner's with a lot of people Graves is their first introduction to Ulm. So we've got a real bit of unfolding to do there. And, uh, and it's hard to do the unfolding because it's a bit like, I suppose, today. Uh, if you, like what I did, I started my blogging on Blogger. And then people say, ah, you must try WordPress. The moment you hit WordPress, ah, <laughs> you know, it's an extra learning curve. And I think, you know, there's the fear of that extra learning curve. Okay, well, you wrote about 20 symbols of Oum connected to uh, a single lifetime, that there would be four seasons in a single lifetime, and you would use these 20 symbols of Oum. Could you, could you talk about that? Yes, I suppose in a way it's, it's very much fiction, and I just, I probably... I'm no better than Graves and Gardner for this because it's kind of my own presentation to help people understand why I do the prompting. So I kind of think of the seasons because a lot of people is uh, right from ancient, I don't know where it started, but I think it does go back several hundred years where people took the 20 symbols and they split them up because it's 20, they split them up five singles into four sections. They call them the acclimates. And uh, the one thing that you, you've immediately got there is if you're splitting up 20 into four quadrants, you've got five in each. You've got the, uh, you end up with the pentatonic scale. And you've got this story of how um, Colum Keel, uh, that uh, he went to, um, Oh, I'm trying to think of the saint's name. He went uh, in Northern Ireland to Moville. Um, it wasn't Feckin, it was some other man. Anyway, he, uh, in Moville, he saw this set of Psalms. And so he copied them. And there's this big story, of course, where he was caught copying them. And this question is, well, why was he copying them? And of course, the Psalms were tunes, they were songs. And the, there is a theory, it's probably made up that it was a copy that actually had ohm symbols to, so that you would know what notes. But then the other thing that interests me around the time, uh, especially early medieval, when people were trying to duplicate to each other uh, because it wasn't the language wasn't uh, 
just amongst clans. Uh, people were duplicating language and there was a wider communication that people didn't speak and sing, they just sang. It was the two in one. And I always think of perhaps today, when you go to the Catholic mass, uh, the uh, priests there, they're always singing. And I'm wondering if it's from that. that um, and I think, you know, the story is that Colm Kiel, that was what he, he wanted to copy with the Psalms. And of course he was reported and the great story was there. He was brought up uh, to the court in Tara. And uh, well, before that, there was the big battle uh, below Ben Bourbon, the Battle of the Books. It wasn't as simple as that, it wasn't the Battle of the Books, it was battle over the Northern O'Neills and the Southern O'Neills because the Southern O'Neills were getting too much of the leadership. But that set aside, it was made up. Oh no, it was all down to copying this book in Mobile. And um, 2,000 of the uh, or was it 3,000 of the Southern O'Neills lost their lives. Uh, none of the Northern, one person in the Northern O'Neills apparently said to have lost their lives. So Colin Keel said, <clears throat> was told by the King, you've got to recover those 3,000 souls that have been lost. So that, and there was trouble going on. They were trying to form Del Raider. The Northern O'Neills were trying to get together with the Aragail people, the Argyle people. Uh, to form Del Raider. That wasn't going very well. So the Coronquil is said to have gone to try and save the souls uh, of people there. That's a, that's a church view. You know, get them hooked onto the Gospels and the, uh, and the Psalms. Go over into the Hebrides then, get them sorted and, and, and make them scribes and so forth. So there's a lot to that. But um, uh, I've kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, the question was there. Oh, that's okay. All right. So there's, we've got 20 of the OM symbols divided yeah. into four seasons. There's five in each season. Oh, that's where it was. You've got me back on track. Yeah. Uh, and so I went on about Colin Keel and, and the notes and the OM. So with that, I, uh, the one thing I went through, when I looked at the line, uh, of the order of the trees that being associated with the orm. The one thing I was noticing is that the trees themselves had very close association with seasons. Um, so the, when uh, very much the starting off with the birch and the rowan, uh, a lot of the folklore and mythology of that and order, it's very much related to the budding season, the willow, um, and uh, the opening up of spring. And then when you get to Beltner, second quarter, we're talking about <clears throat> blossoms that had opened up. And there, uh, all the symbols then very much about the relationships uh, with people. And uh, this is what I feel happens. That once the seeds are sown, you've got Beltner where there's the mating season. Beltner is a time when the sun is actually warming up the dew and the frost on blossoms. And when that happens, the fragrances of the blossoms then increase. Along come the bees and the other uh, buzzlies, and uh, the pollination takes place. And of course, there was people pollination. There's so much in the way of rituals. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the mating and the coming together uh, for Beltner 
is the origin of the US Northern America spring break. I'm sure that's how that all came together with that. So you got that second uh, with the, the mating and uh, the union that comes together because the, without that union of the, the sun on the cold earth, warming the earth and causing that pollination, there wouldn't be any mating, there wouldn't be any germination. And so you've got this warmth and you've got all this abundance. So all the mating has happened. So very much the second part is very mating. And then of course the lunar, so you've got the harvest of all that. Uh, it's very much the harvesting. Uh, it's also the paying of debts time because in order to grow things, people would borrow and uh, they would be in debt to other people in terms of labor, uh, borrowing of equipment maybe, or having equipment made. And that all gets paid up through the harvesting time when they, uh, the fruit is sold, when the grains, the barley, the oats, and that. And then, of course, you've had the women up with the cows on the hills. They've been making butter, so that's collateral as well, because that was, whoops, that was great investment. I'm taking my earphones out there. And, and what, after the sawan, you've got this kind of, it's almost like what people would say, of the crone, of the hag. You've got this quiet time, which is our divinity, but it's not a quiet time as such because there's all this transformation going on. And this is what I'm saying, it's like the resurrection where the, the debris of that past harvest season, suddenly it's almost like the compost heap that gets gradually converted so that it becomes the nutrition, the manure, and the requirements for the next birth for the inbox. So you've got this uh, cycle, continuous cycle going on. So that's why I, th I think of the four. So that's what I did. Uh, and thinking of that as far as an annual harvest, thinking that in terms of our human life. So of course we're born, we're born out of water. Uh, I think people misuse the word womb. Womb is always thought as being a physical place uh, in, in a female mammal or in any animal. But I always feel the womb is actually the water. And it's a womb, to me, it's, the water is a womb before it even enters and it's underground. Everything is dark and you've got that. And then boom, you pop out from that. Uh, any life, and especially with humans, we'll see it. All you've got is your own individuality. You've just been born, you think, oh, the whole world, the whole universe just revolves around me. And children are like that, you know, they, they haven't got any sense of relating until they get a few years old. So you've got this first season in Imolk to Beltany is you're dealing with your individuality and realizing there is other things around you. By the time you get to Biltner, you've you suddenly realize in order to grow, you've got to relate, you've got to connect. And so second season, our summer season, is seems to be all about how we relate, how we connect, how we adapt, how we allow part, everything to be part of us, and how we try to get that balance. And then from being able to re relate well, you've got that third part after Luna, so Luna is a someone, you've got the harvest of all that. Uh, you've got the harvest in terms, especially uh, in the way when you, uh, in a good example with humans is how you actually watch your children who've grown up, they're in education, they might be leaving, they might become apprentices, they might start their own businesses. 
There we see a, a personal harvest on a family level. People with career, careers, they can see that through their careers. But uh, on a farm and on a landscape, you can see the development with the harvest. So you've got all that. And then when you enter uh, after Sawan to back to the Inmol, you've got all this, you've got this incredible wisdom of what's happened in the other three seasons. And you suddenly, I think, become the mentor, you become the teacher, uh, become the guide. And uh, so that's what happens in our lives, I think, because um, I, I suppose put it into perspective with years, I suppose we have that individuality until our teens. Uh, then in our teens, we're not gonna get anywhere until we do relate to adults, relate to other people, friends, we, you know, people hold on to their school friends for life. And I think that's because of learning, you know, they were the first people that we related to. And of course we have our first girlfriends, boyfriends and so forth. And, and I think a lot of us keep in contact with them for life too. Uh, and then we, we're going on uh, like, uh, we get our first jobs, first careers, we do um, study apprenticeships, whatever. So we're then accumulating in, the summer in our own life is, I suppose, is when we have families, build a career, build a farm, uh, just to establish ourselves on this earth. And then it gets to the point where the bones, <laughs> the old bones can't, and muscles can't do like they did, but you still have that experience. You still have that wisdom. And uh, I, it seems our lives become more dedicated to the mentoring and getting together with people, some say to share their spirituality. Uh, the children growing up, they don't need us anymore, we, or we don't need to be with them. And so we got that whole divinity that we have as mentors, teachers, uh, so that um, the next, uh, and it helps, especially, I suppose, with our own children, we've got the, the next inbox for so on, births and how they're dealing with their children. So that's, that's why I've split it up into the four uh, seasons of our lives. And I think that's why I turn each sign into a prompt and relate each prompt to that particular season of our life. And in the whole, that's why I called, as I mentioned earlier, that's why I do nature folklore, because I think the storytelling and folklore was all about the changes in seasons, changes in weather, changes in vibrations, thing, uh, yeah, changes in wavelengths. And I think uh, that's where the recognition, you can put that all into imagery and you put that into characters and place names and they are the prompts. So uh, if you can get between the prompts, then I think that gives you very much an excellent coaching. Yeah, okay. Could you talk about a few of the trees associated with Oum? What, if, for instance, what's the first tree of of spring or what birch. are they? Birch. Birch, definitely. <laughs> uh <-huh. coughs> and birch is, um, it's a wonderful tree because uh, it's a foundation tree. Uh, anyone who's looked closely at birch, they'll see they have really the lightest seeds. And uh, it's amazing those seeds, they can ca be captured by the wind. And certainly in Ireland, Scotland, we can have some pretty ferocious winds uh, in the early part uh, at Imol, uh, February time. That's when we get some of our toughest winds. So, the birch seeds, which are right, ready to go, and they'll disappear for miles. 
and they'll land. And it doesn't take much for a birch to actually get on the ground. No animal or bird's going to come along and eat, eat bird, birch seeds. So they actually grow. And they, as they grow, it's more or less, hey, everybody, all the other trees we've made of wood here, we're the foundation. And uh, so they, it kind of invites everybody in. And you can, really, you can't start a natural woodland without the birch. So it's a very good starting point, mm. I think, with that. And, you know, that's the um, first thing that happens um, uh, after we're born, because uh, we can sort of set these foundations uh, very easily. So it's quite as simple as that. But the interesting thing, they say the birch is the lady of the woods. And I somehow think it's the man of the woods uh, in because of setting the seeds, I suppose, is because they come along with they saw it's a tree that sows wild seeds everywhere and the seeds go into the womb of the land and the mating takes place. But I think it's quite interesting that on the Isle of Man, for instance, that uh, it's still uh, a punishment on the Isle of uh, flogging. Uh, is a, uh, People can still be, it doesn't happen, but in the courts, people can be sent for a public flogging on the Isle of Man. And when they do a flogging, they use birch, birch branches. Wow. And uh, the most likely flogging is going to be the abuse of women. That on the Isle of Man, and that's that's the where the most common case of getting a flogging with the birch is if you've abused a woman. That's nice to hear. When <laughs> <laughs> when was do you know when the last flogging occurred? I don't know. I haven't looked into the Isle of Man. It's, it probably isn't that long ago. It may well be sixties or seventies. Well, my goodness. Okay, just interesting. Yeah. Sure. Hmm. In, in your substack, you were writing about the cherry tree also that this this professor of language, I think, and, and at um, Trinity. Damien McMahon, yes. Yes, that I, I'm trying to recall. I read that article a bit ago. Yeah, uh, he because the traditional is the fifth fifth note. I always call these um, over symbols notes. Mm -hmm. So it's the fifth note in the first acme. Uh, it's the transition because you're going to go on to the, the spring. Uh, have I got that right? Am I? Uh, yes, of course you are. Uh, you, you go, uh, yeah, you, you are, I, I'm getting a little, shouldn't get confused, a bit of brain fog there. Yes, you're going, uh, it's the last one of the spring, and uh, people think of ash, and you're going into the first one of the summer, the mating one, which I'll talk about. I'll, I'll hold that off for a little while. But the ash didn't make sense, because when you go to new in the ash, new in uh, Damien, uh, he looked into that and said, well, it doesn't tell you anything. Nguyen, if you, if you translate it, it's a forked branch. Every tree has a forked branch. And there's quite, uh, it's amazing how he went into this because the one thing that came out of the bullet, uh, Book of Ballymote, interestingly enough, uh, in the 14th, 15th century, I can't remember the Latin name for it, but the scribes there actually developed a new set of translations, and there's two new sets. So he looked into them as well and, and find out what they're talking about, because I think the scribes thought this doesn't make sense as well, even though they were putting this down. And uh, I it was through that, and I can't remember the words, I put it in my article because I, came, I did look up on his notes for that one. Uh, but 
it didn't make sense. And he says, we're going, we're going from the end of spring and we're going uh, into the summer and so on. What is happening? What is the most outstanding tree at that time? And through these translations, uh, 14th century, he deducted a translation backwards into cherry mm -hmm. and the cherry blossom and the fragrance of that. So he worked on that and all of the symbolism that had been used for the new and the ash was more appropriate to the cherry tree. It makes more sense. Yeah, uh, because that, uh, again, I did these symbols according to the time of our lives and also in relation to the time of the year. And uh, before you're going from the spring to the summer, you've got the fragrance of the cherry well before the hawthorn because the first one of uh, the summer, first note of summer is the hawthorn. So, and you've got the blossoms there, which this year were absolutely phenomenal. So was the cherry this year. Wonderful. So he, so he said, no, it's not the ash. The cherry tree is the last. It's the fifth one tree. Yeah. And, and then we come into the Hawthorne, did you say? Yeah, the first one of summer, which, um, and it's my, it is my favorite one. And uh, Isn't the Hawthorne the fairy tree also? The Hawthorne is definitely the uh, fairy tree. Uh, but with the uh, Christianity and with the changing of calendars, because in Sawan, 1582, I think it was, uh, when the Gregorian, uh, Pope Gregory, I think he was Pope Gregory the 12th or 13th, uh, decided he did, didn't like the Julian calendar uh, at all, didn't think it was accurate. He brought out his own version and that changed the dates of everything. And uh, how that clumsy calendar took over the world, I don't know. But anyway, what, uh, what happened then is that the time of, um, time of Bildner changed. Time of building them uh, for a lot of people didn't have calendars, didn't understand calendars. A lot of them could observe the moon, but that, you know, the moon isn't the same place each solar year. So that gave you some sort of idea. But the one thing that really stood out, and I'm sure that happened with ancients, they would regard the building of time as when the Hawthorne uh, blossom came out. It didn't matter what day that was. The moment it came out, that's the way it started. But of course, we have May Day, and May is um, a Roman uh, word. May, um, May uh, again, it's really describing when the sun gets warmer. And so we had May the 1st, which is what, and a lot of people say May the 1st, that's building a time, which is nonsense because you've got, really got to study the sidereal time anyway. Uh, but the thing is then, the Hawthorne blossoms are not out. But there are May Day celebrations. So we have this thing in Ireland. It's probably in other countries too, I bet in Spain. Uh, you take the Hawthorne, some Hawthorne sticks, but they be careful. You know, people can be a bit of vandals with this. You take some of these sticks, and what people used to do was put them in a pot. Uh, or sometimes they would actually have a use a, a Hawthorn tree and not pull it out. I think that's a later thing. But you would put it yellow flowers you put yellow flowers on these sticks. So it was very much a time of yellow to celebrate the sun coming out. And uh, we left out on the eve of, uh, of the May Day. Uh, so the idea of putting it out is to capture the dew or the frost of that night 
And then the following morning, the warmth of the sun would melt that dew in the frost. And the idea is to try and catch that water because it was regarded as a holy water. Uh, but there was also from the Industrial Revolution, they got changed because anything that people could go door to door to beg with, uh, they would go around with the yellow flowers from door to door as well and say, oh, we're bringing you blessings, the yellow flowers, but you won't get those blessings unless you give us something to eat, that type of stuff. But there is a sort of, before all of that, and even since that, uh, the sort of reverence of the sun upon the yellow flowers was the main thing. And even the May Queen has an association with that. So all this sort of replaced the hawthorn for a while. Uh, but of course, with the hawthorn, you don't, rarely do you get a frost uh, or a dew on the hawthorn, sometimes you do. And it's strange, just those extra six days into May, the frosts have usually finished, and the dew's usually finished, and it's amazing. Um, but then there's different species of hawthorn. The English hawthorn actually does come out at the end of April, but in Ireland, we got our own version of hawthorn, and that often doesn't come out till the middle of May. And so that's the one we take notice of. And, uh, but uh, I've always loved the hawthorn because when the hawthorn comes, that is so very serious uh, mating. And uh, it was a very serious, when I was a child, we had, um, I think it's called the wild hunt now, but um, certainly people didn't have the transport, there wasn't the internet, they didn't travel as much. So the chance of uh, your family line going straight up was very high. So somehow you had to mix up the gene pool. And um, so what would happen is, is that uh, during the night people, uh, or uh, dawn, they would disappear over to the nearest village and they would sort of mate up with people. You know, there was a whole secret mating thing. I mean, there was talk about affairs. I, I, even stories from the Hebrides, I think, I think people would be shocked. I mean, uh, today it would be quite surprising because you would get um, a, uh, young men would end up going to the next village and they would be mating up with older women, not obviously not to get them pregnant, but to actually show them what to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> you would get things like that. So there was, uh, uh, there's a lot to it. And you asked if I could do a poem with that. So I might as well do the, uh, uh, the 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 hawthorn because I think just by telling the poem it really explains that uh, tradition ritual and the goings on because I certainly remember it I certainly I must admit I did sort of play act it there was one girlfriend I had uh, through my teens and uh, she was quite into this. <laughs> And uh, she does still contact me from time to time, so it wasn't such a bad thing. So she's in her seventies as well. <laughs> so, Goodness. but anyway, this uh, is this is from your book, "Bathing yes. in the Phase Breath." Yes. Just real quick, where can people purchase that book, "Bathing in the Phase Breath"? I think it's pretty much uh, you can order it from any bookshop. I know it's, a lot of people do get it from the dreaded Amazon, uh -huh. uh, but. <laughs> But I, uh, it seems to be available everywhere. Okay. <clears throat> okay, yeah, and it's just full and rich with your beautiful poetry. So this yeah, because I didn't actually bring this book out to be a, a published book. I didn't, uh, I'd had a hard time with the publishers in the 70s. I didn't want to go through agents and publishers and stuff like that. 
all I wanted was a book that would be a calling card because we were Karakori, we were doing these tours to the US. So it was just something to, that I could personally hand over to people. That's all I wanted the book for. But um, it did, I did send the script to, oh, I think it was Book Baby. And uh, they just threw it everywhere. And there was all this sort of print on demand services and books were sent everywhere. So it did get around and it's still doing quite well. You know, and which I'm grateful for because I'm not seeing so many people now. So mm -hmm. uh, to give uh, copies out. So I think if, uh, if anybody asks for it, if it's not in the bookshop, they can order it for you. Okay. And uh, someone's buying them because I'm still getting monthly payments for it. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, this is uh, Uther Hawthorne. Um, I'll have a wee bit of the Water nourishment there. Uther Hawthorne plays mischievous trickery. If we attempt to define what's real and unreal, until we discover it's not a question of how to live, but it's a question that is our life. Uther Hawthorne's full of riddles. It lures us, embraces us, and it hides. And fragrances flirt with the wombs of women, triggering sparks of lustful longing of men to join them in the mating dance. From the circles and swirlings of dance, those dances of wonder, hoping, and lust, Uth pulls away the blanket of time, is a tease of the fairy folk, they say. A tease of the fairy folk, some ask, around their hearth fires, the cackle when stalked with a thorn twig or two. My fire is lit and my bed is made, of hawthorn flowers I've gathered, and I'm far away from any home. And she came with me, nighttime, moontime, in the springtime, under the starlight, beneath a hawthorn tree. She trod softly over the new ferns and shamrocks towards my white chamber, towards my sweet bed, to rest her warm breast with me beneath the hawthorn tree. Now I'd always thought, and I'd always been told, never to touch hawthorns or I'd forsake luck, that a soul may pass from the earth early, that the water will stop flowing throughout this land. But there's something I feel, that before I'm too old, I must lay with the hawthorn where I will bless hope and heal a broken heart. Nobody knows who seeds a hawthorn tree, what sprouts its warning thorn, what scents its embracing blossom. We know it came to us long ago. So hawthorn hands gripped into the earth while our eyes, our eyes glanced towards the sky. So that's with the hawthorn. That's beautiful. Huh? <laughs> and the bit there I kind of is a little bit biographical because I started off with the memory uh, of the sort of young wild hunter the mating and uh, where it's almost like um, some bird species like the wild turkeys the wild turkeys that make their beds up and then the female turkeys come along and see which bed they like best so the men did this with the hawthorn flowers in the woods so it's a similar Sort of thing, but what I went they on with... could make a bed of hawthorn flowers. Yes. Oh, 
That's beautiful. That's what uh, yeah, that's what you do because the fragrance, the fragrance teasing teasing the wounds of women uh-huh. to engage uh-huh. them in the mating dance. That's what oh, that whole goodness. thing is about. But I went into it, uh, you know, the, the idea made per. I went forward with the last verses of that because uh, the first time uh, I had a stroke, two thousand and eight, um, I thought I was having a heart attack, and it was always a thing passed down through the family because they were they all were fit and great, and then when they boom, they were gone. Heart attack, they were gone. But if there was any symbol, the one thing they were precious about was the idea uh, that. Um, Hawthorne needs heart seeds. And, uh, and I'm, I think it's scientifically true that if you can get anything from the Hawthorne, berries are best, blossoms are next. Uh, if a winter take the bark, if you can get that in hot water on it, and if you think you've got a heart attack, drink a tea of that, and it can arrest a heart attack within 40, 50 seconds, apparently. It's very rapid. Mm. So there's me thinking, got this heart attack. I leapt out of bed, went outside, when, luckily, there was hawthorns right outside the door, and uh, it was the blossoms were just out, and there were some berries still hanging there from the season before. So I just grabbed those. Of course, you're not supposed to take them indoors. I thought, damn it, if I don't take them indoors, I'm going to anyway. So I had the kettle boiling, and put. And it's funny I could still do this, and uh, because I was dizzy and difficult to get coordination, I think I'd phoned for the ambulance. Yes, I had. And uh, just in case, but uh, I managed to get this not quite boiling. And of course I thought, well, you know, I might only have a few seconds to live. Stir, 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 no leaving for five, 10 minutes. And I, I kind of threw some ice in it and guzzled it down and just cooled it down. And the moment I'd done that, I, I went paralyzed. I went totally paralyzed. And oh, well, you know, what's, this is supposed to work. What's happened? I, I couldn't move anything. And uh, the ambulance came out and they mentioned we were off and they took me to Sligo Hospital, but I could still speak. And uh, when I got into A&E and the doctor there, I said, oh, sorry, doctor, I did something really foolish. Uh, I thought it was having a heart attack. So I guzzled down a load of Hawthorne and suddenly I went paralyzed and he started laughing. And I thought, well, I don't think this is very funny. And he actually explained to me, he said, if you, he said, I'm not really supposed to tell you this, but if you hadn't taken that drink of Hawthorne, you wouldn't be speaking to me now. So I don't know if he was saying that it uh, kind of made it stop it getting worse, but I think the one thing that he was telling me about was the fact that I could speak to him. I hadn't lost my speech. Mm. And certainly in the hospital, I did meet some people who'd had strokes and they couldn't talk. Right. So, you know, that was uh, so, and it didn't take long. I think it was a few days. I got one side of me came back after a few days. The other side took about two or three months before uh, they loosened up again. But uh, I, I regard the Hawthorne as precious, not only for the fun and the mating, and the fact that the mating was so balanced. I mean, uh, you couldn't be as more consensual as the whole experience of that. And, uh, and then a lifesaver as well. And I think uh, I just, you know, I prize the Hawthorne for those two experiences. Oh my goodness! Thank goodness! Thank goodness! I, yeah, you and you have quite a knowledge of herbs. I mean, my goodness, you're very well. Those two, uh, I haven't memorized because I've never gone into practice of it. Uh, I, after I did some research and development in herbs, I didn't want to be in practice. Uh, even though I qualified all that, uh, I wanted to get back into the theatre, and uh, I suppose I approached plants. 
in the same way as I do with trees. And that's why I talk about clairvoyance of the land. One thing with herbs I find with any plant, you don't need to know the names of them. You don't really, sometimes it's handy to look up in a book, but if you're just stuck there, you've got no book, your brain doesn't remember the Latin names, which are quite awkward. You've still got your senses. And I find that it's amazing how many plants, just by giving them a little nip with your teeth, you can understand from the reaction from your teeth, whether it's a go or a poison or, and I don't know how, you, and that's where apprenticeship comes in, I think. And that's why apprenticeship is so vital. Uh, and it's something we've lost because apprenticeship is a lifetime. And it's a shame that we, uh, we've lost that, that people don't get that, start that from their childhood because their parents weren't apprentices, they went to college. So I think we've lost that, which is a real shame because when you do a proper apprenticeship, I, um, you don't really need the books, you don't need words. And one of the areas where I feel, and it's seriously bad, where I think apprenticeship is seriously lost is with doctors. I remember uh, going to our local village doctor when I was uh, a child and uh, it was amazing. He walked into the doctor's office, you gave him a spiel about what it is. And the doctor relied so much on his intuition, on his experience, on his apprenticeship. And he would diagnose you exactly from his intuition. He didn't even have to look up books. He didn't have to do anything. Uh, you go into a doctor today, they're straight in the computer looking up Google to work out and they're trying to work out which drugs which pharma drugs they're going to give you and i i'm going to you know i think a lot of people are so frustrated with the medical profession because if they don't do that they could get fired it's like that man in a and e he said i shouldn't be telling you this because if he was caught doing that he could be fired for approving uh of uh, using uh the hawthorn there but I, it was a few years ago, uh, there's a lovely festival bloom in Dublin. It's a wonderful, it's for gardeners, for people who cook. It's everything to do with food and growing food. A uh, wonderful festival. It's always on the first weekend of June. And uh, I was at this, the weather's always fantastic at that festival too. And for some reason, being a hot day, I suddenly went shivery and I went uh, kind of, faint so I had to go home and uh, and I didn't know what it was and the, it, it, being a weekend you can't go into doctors not anymore so you have the call-in doctors I didn't want to go to A&E so I've got one of these call-in doctors and usually these call-in doctors are people who've just entered the country they're immigrants uh, they've been doctors elsewhere looking. and I had this man appear uh, from Zimbabwe I don't think I've seen a person with a black skin as that in all my life. He was absolutely jet black. And you just felt it that when he got to the bedside, wow, this is one of these intuitional doctors that I remember when I was 50. He was totally that way. And he didn't have to look anything up. He, uh, I suppose it's an obvious thing. He said, oh, you've got pneumonia. And he just gave, he says, you don't need to go to hospital with this. And he just gave me how to get through my day and just simple, basic grandmother stuff of how to look after yourself until you recover. And I did recover very quickly. Uh, so, uh, but that was such a breath of fresh air. You know, I hadn't realized how much the doctors had lost in the terms of apprenticeship. 
you know, because this man from Zimbabwe, I bet he was a barefoot doctor, you know, the barefoot doctors they have in Africa and the Middle East, uh, they really have been brought up through the families and know what certain plants do. They have some weird stuff where you can get a fish tooth for something, <laughs> you know, all these kinds. And of course they learn about some of these pharmaceutical things and they think, oh yeah, I'll mix that in with my practice. But he came over as being one of these barefoot doctors that uh, suddenly have gone for the qualifications um, so he could get a job in Europe, but his barefoot legacy was still with him. I thought that was wonderful. And yeah, he wasn't cut off from his intuition. I think this yeah. is what happens. They get so far into dogma that yes. they lose connection really to nature, ultimately. It is, and this, is, uh, and this reflects back to how I approach the OM as well, because I think and that's what I try to do through the course is to get people to leave their language behind and look for prompts. Don't try to string words together. Uh, try and get as naked as you can to use a prompt. And I think the trees are a very good thing. You can use plants, you can use certain landscapes you're familiar with, but I think it's not only a prompt, find something that you trust. And a lot of people are scared People are scared to even let the language go away. But if you can get yourself into a situation with trust, like I used to try and encourage in the tree labyrinth, once you've got that sense of trust, that means your senses are all alive and you're making this relationship, that then you, your intuition is alive because I think you've, you've suddenly, you've tuned into the whole collective consciousness. I call it the she, that's to me is the she, is the consciousness. And if you want to go further with my own personal belief, I think it's just being in contact with the water because uh, there's so many, so much storytelling saying that the earth was once all water and it was underwater creatures that would put clay together and put it to the surface. The sun hardened and we got land. But no matter what it is, uh, before we're even born, before we uh, even conceived, uh, we're water. You know, water is a, it's like heat on water conception and our body temple is made but we all start off with water and that's where i feel this this whole she and the consciousness and then when all through our lives we're more water than we are solid so that i think it's the most precious thing to do if we part when we pass on is to let go and let that water rejoin all the other water again and uh, that to me is our source of consciousness and I, I, I'm probably just making it up. I, I always have this trust that everything I've lived through is going to go with the water and just go back to and go back to rejoin all the water again and, and let someone else use it. So <laughs> and you never know what comes up through the water. But I think when we're in a space and um, you know, uh, we trust in a space and people start describing visions as if they are real. And I, I, visions are real, they're incredible. You can see people, you can see animals, and of course children see the interpretation of a little girl with wings as a fairy. Uh, but I think the water itself can manifest into something we'd recognize. And that gives us a sense of security. And that's why I think with the prompts, allow yourself open to prompts that you can trust in that become conduits for that consciousness because that's much more powerful than any words 
any books, any sentences can be. That's what I tend to follow myself. So here I am attempting to pull that into words, which is a little bit uh, futile in a way. So, <laughs> but I hope from what I'm saying, people, it stirs people's imagination. Oh, I can relate to that. You know, that's, I, I had that experience this then and then. So I think if people can listen to words and they can relate to experiences, they're not dealing with words, they're, they're bringing up the experiences. Yes, yes. It makes me think of when I was a little girl and uh, we were living in Toronto and we had a house and there were two trees. One of them was a birch and the other tree. Oh, my goodness. I forget what this tree was. It, it was gorgeous. And I could also see the upper branches from my bedroom window. But there was a branch that I could climb to and I would just spend time on the branch <laughs> of that tree and it would talk to me, but not in language, but I could feel and we were feeling each other. And when we had to finally move, that was my greatest grief was to leave that tree. And I was in Toronto some time ago. I mean, my goodness, I'm 60 now, which is hard to believe, but I was there probably 10 years ago. And we did drive by my old house. And, and I didn't say this to anyone, but what I just needed to see was that that tree was still there. And, and it was, <laughs> very good. Yeah. Yeah, it really made an impression on me. And again, no language. Mm. Yeah, that's the important thing, I, I, I think, for everybody to get back to that. Because um, the thing is, uh, that's what I feel that prompts do. You take away the words, you get the feeling. You, or you, you, what it is, is an, it's an all senses, synthesis of all senses interpretation. And I, I like jotting words down, but for someone else, they would doodle, doodle uh, like in the cave paintings. They would do like the equivalent of the cave paintings on a piece of paper. Or, or they might whittle something out of a piece of wood. They might be carrying a knife. And that's their sort of next step interpretation from when the sense is, oh, I want to archive this in some way. And uh, so you've got all those options. I like to jot down words, but someone else, it's just a whittled piece of wood. If you keep that piece of wood, you're suddenly, boom, you remember that experience. And uh, you can, you can, what's the word? There's a lovely sort of digital word for that, repurpose. <laughs> that you can actually, you know, you've got your whittle and you can repurpose it into doing a painting or writing a poem or uh, writing, doing something. So you can repurpose into these crafted skills that we have. Because the one thing we can't get away from is though we have the sensory perception like the animals and birds that we, you know, we always, oh, it's us and nature that, you know, we have those same sensory perception then because they don't speak with words. But uh, one thing that I think is unique with humans is we, we're motivated to make things. We're motivated to put things together. And writing is one of those motiva motivations. It's, uh, it's us creating stuff from words. So I think that's all great stuff because that means we're human. But the thing is, don't let us just do that. This is why I'm, I'm really shite scared of AI, because it, to me, it's, it's just totally wiping us off from that uh, communication through senses, because right. we're, we're trusting a server that's been put together by men uh -huh. and uh, women, any programmers. And, uh, but it's so convenient, because I, I think of Google. You know, Google in the 90s, you could get some pretty good information from it. But now if you look at Google, 
the top pages because people have paid to be there in many cases. Uh, but the thing is, before Google, we had libraries. We'd have to go to the library. We'd have to search through books. And even though I was a late student uh, in university, there was no World Wide Web, but there was online. Oh, I forget what they, they called the network. Alpha, uh, oh, I forget what the network, Alphanet or something, or ARPANET, ARPANET. And each university would have their own script, which was Gopher. So you would go to connect with the university and you would give uh, the gopher some instructions like you would the librarian. And that gopher goes through all the university archives and then would send you a list of things and the information that you need. So that was sort of the in-between. But the fact we don't use the libraries, but uh, then when we get the books from the libraries, it's starting to think, well, why did this person write these words? Where did these words come from? In many cases, it's because they did their own version of what someone else wrote before. Hence why we put um, lines and lines of credits of where we got from. But you know, it, I, I think it's very important to go back to the source, which is our senses. So, yes. uh, you know, so we've been sort of programmed towards that AI, I think, ever since the World Wide Web and ever since Google came along. It's just the next step. So I'm pretty scared of that taking people too much away from that because it's going to, for one, it's going to cause a, a wrath of mental problems because of that disconnection. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you've got trust and if you've got prompts, if you, if your senses are working together, I don't think you could ever get depression. You wouldn't get loneliness. You would be secure in yourself the whole time. But once you disconnect from all that, all kinds of horrible things happen. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, they, they're telling you it's called artificial intelligence and it's taking you away from living intelligence. Yes. Yes. So big difference. Well, listen, John, let's finish the first hour here and I will invite listeners to come over to the mushroomsapprentice.com and listen to the second <laughs> hour. And I would love for you in the second hour, John, to talk about Bridget and also the she and a few other things you have so so much to share so people can contact you at john at celticways.com is that correct that's the email yeah that's the email and then the website is celticways.com and the substack no uh naturefolklore.com oh god oh, my apologies my apologies there is a celticways.com but uh I haven't looked at it for ages. The idea of that, I keep that up um, uh, as a redirect. I won't let that go because um, if ever, I do that for insurance, it's terrible. I shouldn't do that. But <laughs> I, I know that uh, Celticways.com to a website uh, owner is worth a lot of money. So I'm relying on that to pay for my, my uh, willow uh, coffin uh, with a tree <laughs> over it, the uh, funeral. So that's when Celticways.com could be sold to pay for that to happen. Gotcha. So that's, that's, that's my burial insurance. <laughs> right. So naturefolklore.com. Yes. And, and then people really go to Substack. It is so ridiculously inexpensively priced to for a monthly subscription at, to John's incredible knowledge. And that is Substack.com at Nature Folklore. And I'll see the rest of you in the second hour. <laughs>